Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are devoting our episode to Barbara Walters, legendary news anchor and soft news personality. How do you describe Barbara Walters, host, current host of The View? Uh, I guess she's a personality journalism extraordinaire. That is a great title for her. I will, I will airbrush her a t-shirt with that on it if she wants. Nice. And I hope that her face on it would have that airbrushed soft look. As it does now. Yes. Um, yeah, Barbara Walters recently announced that she is retiring, not just from The View, but from journalism, from TV, Etc. And she's 83 years old, which makes it even more awesome that she initially made the announcement via Twitter. Right. Yeah. And and she's no dummy, that Barbara Walters. She's she's pretty media savvy, as one would expect from somebody who's been in the industry for as long as she has. But she made this Twitter announcement uh, the night before her big official announcement on The View on May 13th. And coincidentally or not, it's during sweeps week. Right. And so she says she's going to retire in 2014. And she's been on television continuously for over 50 years in different capacities, mostly on ABC and NBC. And we wanted to take an episode to talk about her because she was such a groundbreaking woman in broadcast television. And now with her legacy, there's there's a little bit of controversy, but we wanted to take it. Take a moment to talk about her highlights and why Barbara Walters really does matter. Yeah, she's had some pretty significant firsts. And two that go hand in hand are the fact that she was the first female co-host over on ABC News. Uh, she co-hosted with Harry Reasoner, who really sounds like a jerk. And when she was offered this co-hosting position, she became the first female anchor to make a million bucks. Yeah, and before that, she had become the first female co-host of the Today Show as well, which was where she really got her start. Um, and before that, when she went to work for NBC in the early 60s, she started out as a secretary and then quickly worked her way up the ranks. And from 1961 to 1974, she was a reporter, a writer, and a panel member for the Today Show. And, and at that time, the, when she was on the show, they, they had a token female on there called the Today Girl who was usually a model or an actress. So when Walters was tapped to become a a new Today Girl, it was a big deal because she said I wasn't beautiful and I had trouble pronouncing my R's and I, I had no idea that they would want me for this. But of course, she jumped on it. Right, and the Today Girl slot was usually filled by models or actresses, women who basically covered light, fluffy lifestyle pieces, because at the time, she said, you know, nobody was going to take a woman seriously reading the news, and so they kind of were relegated to the background doing fluffier pieces. Didn't she call it something like the, the tea-pouring stories? Right, yeah. In uh, this Makers video that that was uh, produced by PBS and AOL, she, she did call them tea-pouring interviews. She said that for years... The Today Show had one female writer out of something like seven. And the only way, basically, that you could get the job is if another female writer got married or died. 
And then they would hire literally one other female writer to do the quote unquote female pieces, which she called, you know, the fashion shows, the celebrity interviews. Uh, so she ended up doing that because it was all she could do. And I didn't realize this, but in 1970, Barbara Walters published her first book, which was called How to Talk with Practically Anybody About Practically Anything, because she made a name for herself pretty much off the bat with her interviewing style. She was always able to get notable interviews, as we'll talk about a little bit more, and kind of developed a, a signature style. And in 1972, as things at NBC are really starting to pick up for her. Just to give you a snapshot, Barbara Walters told Time Magazine in 1972, quote, the only woman with a daily network show is Dinah Shore, and she sings. I'd like to do evening news specials like the men do. A female anchor woman on the nightly news hasn't happened yet either. It's like she knew what was going to happen, and that proved to be a very prescient quote because... She broke those barriers. She did that stuff. But first, in 1974 to 1976, she became the co-host on the Today Show. But it took the death of this guy named Frank McGee, who was one of the hosts, for her to actually be named co-host. Because when she was on the Today Show, Frank McGee was so opposed to a woman being at an equal level as him, because it just was unheard of at the time, that it wasn't until he died that she was able to step in and tell her bosses, hey, you know what? According to my contract, I am a co-host and you need to call me a co-host. And then in 1975, she snagged her first daytime Emmy, which was not for the Today Show, but for this show called Not For Women Only that she hosted that I believe was based in New York. It might have just been on uh, New York channels, but it was uh, kind of a thing where she would invite women on to talk about what they were doing. It was a little bit feminist, um, and that's where she got her first Emmy. Well, you know, she is known for her interviewing style, and she developed it out of sheer scrappiness. This woman was pushed aside so often that she often had to go outside of normal methods of interviewing people. If she wanted an interview in those days that she was co-hosting and kind of relegated to just the woman stories... If she wanted one that was totally hers, she had to literally go outside of the studio so that she wouldn't have to wait for the men to ask the interview questions. Because when, after she had become a staple on the Today Show, alongside people like Hugh Downs and Frank McGee, uh, she was restricted from asking questions of the show's quote-unquote serious guests until the male co-host had, had asked his. That was an actual rule that the dude had come up with. And so... She had to clear her own path. She said uh, they they became mine, the interviews that she did outside of the studio, which she said is how she got her reputation as an interviewer and a pushy cookie. A pushy cookie indeed. But in April 20th, 1976, not only was she a pushy cookie, but Barbara Walters was a self-described lonely cookie because when that was when she got that groundbreaking co-anchor job on ABC World News Tonight. And she was at the top of her game at the time, but also completely despairing and almost depressed about it because whenever she would walk into the studio, and this was from that Makers interview on PBS, she talks about how no one 
wanted to talk to her. The mostly male staff and Harry Reisner, her co-host, wanted absolutely nothing to do with her. They would make jokes about her because they thought it was ludicrous that a woman was co-anchoring. Can you believe it? But the funny thing is, though, she was making more than Harry Reisner when she first got in there. She snagged that record $1 million contract and half a million was for the co-anchoring job and half a million was for her interview specials, which was really more so than that job at ABC World News Tonight. It was her interview specials that became her hallmark. Right. But you know what? Just like Harry Reasoner didn't accept her, viewers didn't either. And journalists called her a flop. And she even says that, you know, she was so hurt. And she actually asked the journalist who wrote the story, you know, you called me a flop. Why, why, why did you do that? And he said, well, you are. And within two years of becoming the co-anchor with Harry Reasoner, she was reassigned to do specials. And Reasoner was actually let out of his contract to go to another network. And Barbara said, you know, they could have kept him, but they bet on me. And she said it was during this time that she worked the hardest and did probably the best interviews of her life, which included people like Fidel Castro in the very famous joint interview with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat. And quickly, going back to that short stint that she had at ABC World News Tonight, when I was reading about her struggle managing all of the criticism, it gave me a little bit of perspective for if I have a bad day, if someone sends us, Carolina, a maybe not so nice email, I need to remember Barbara Walters and all of the flack that she was getting at the time. For instance, Larry Flint offered her a million dollars to pose for Hustler. All right, whatever. But then in 1976, Time Magazine called her the quote unquote most appalling argument for feminism uh, there was Gilda Radner's famous Saturday Night Live impression of her Baba Wawa, which she was she knew that it was a joke, but it was also offensive because everyone was making fun of how she spoke. Right. She really did not like it. And she even said in that video that she caught her daughter watching the impression on TV and said, what are you doing? Why are you watching that stuff? And her 10-year-old turns around and says, oh, mom, have a sense of humor. And she said, okay, I get it. But even then, it was still so hard to accept. Right. And and even later on, Barbara Walters ended up meeting Gilda Radner, and she was very friendly and all of that. But can you imagine being a national punchline when, at the same time, you're at the top of your game? Right. Well... What she said saved her during that really dark time was letters from women that came pouring in. It's things like, if you can do it, we can do it. Hang in there. We're having the same problems. And she said, I really realized that women from all walks of life understood what I was going through and they were with me. Yeah. And so even though today when we think about Barbara Walters and we think about The View and it, it, it isn't exactly hard hitting news, it might not have uh, the, the brainiest reputation. But looking at this snapshot of her early career and not even that early, she was 45 years old when she got that job at ABC World News Tonight, um, it still speaks so much to to the ambition and tenacity that she had. And when she was struggling with these these networks, she said that a lot of times she wasn't one to elbow her way into a vice president's office and demand things. She said that I just wanted to do the work. And that was the way that she snagged all of those interviews, those famous interviews, like the ones that you mentioned, and also the fact that she interviewed in 1980 Richard Nixon and has interviewed every single sitting president since then. Uh, in 1999, she 
she had that famous interview with Monica Lewinsky, which is still the most watched interview in television history. And it's incredible to think that she was still able to do all this stuff, still able to keep all this momentum, even when, you know, major media outlets are basically telling her to go home already. Yeah, well, so... What sparked this drive? I mean, obviously, she has incredible drive and, like you said, this tenacity to keep pressing on in the face of, oh, everyone. And she credits not necessarily her parents supporting her, but her parents not directly supporting her. She said, you know, I didn't have parents who said you can do everything you want. Uh, what I did have was a father who was in show business and my fear that it could all be gone tomorrow and that I had to work. If the job was grubby, I could not say I'm going to leave it and get married because I wasn't very good at that and I didn't want to have that as my safety net. I had to work. And Barbara Walters was married three times, four times if you count the second time she remarried her third husband and carry the one. But, um, you know, th- as far as like that tenacity and that that not giving up and having to work, being a woman in that era who is like, no, I'm going to work. Screw you. I'm not going to fall back on marriage. I mean, it's interesting in the perspective of is she a feminist? What did she do for the women's movement? Because she did want to help other women and she did want to put a focus in the news on the women's movement. But there, there was a bit of a pushback. Uh, she had sent, when she worked very early in her career at NBC, she had sent a memo to the NBC president asking, shouldn't we do something on this whole this whole little trend going on right now, the women's movement? And his response, scrawled on the top of the memo, was not enough interest. And nevertheless, though, she, you know, she still made such a big impact. There was a blog post over at AARP by Lori Lynch, and she said it was her ceiling shattering move to ABC in 1976 to co-host the nightly news that really made young women sit up and take notice. Those of us aspiring to big careers in journalism were being told by mentors and mothers that we too could be another Barbara Walters. Mm -hmm. And I mean, from that perspective, That's pretty incredible. I think probably for you and I, we both went to journalism school and I don't think that Barbara Walters was ever mentioned really in any of the classes we took because by that time, you know, maybe we just sort of take her for granted as, you know, popping up on 2020 and having the view. I mean, she I didn't realize this, but she launched her famous 10 most fascinating people special in 1993 and -hmm. the view launched when she was 70. Yeah. 1999. I just like that kind of blew my mind because I guess I just think of the view as having started when I was much older, but yeah. apparently not. But I mean, as far as, you know, the women's movement, she might not have directly associated with it or with feminism, but she certainly didn't turn her back on it, which, you know, is what Patricia Bradley uh, said in her book, Mass Media and the Shaping of American Feminism, where she actually talked to a lot of other female journalists from this era who said, you know, I remember Barbara being like so friendly and always offering a hand and wanting to help which is something that Barbara herself confirmed in that Makers video. You know, she said, I try to be very supportive of women because I know what I went through. And women do need that help. And it is still a little difficult for men to understand it. The fact that we still have the same pull between the career and the child and the marriage. Yes, she said, men do to a degree, but not the same way that women do. Yeah, and in 2012, she definitely raised some hackles among feminists and just viewers in general who were kind of confused when she 
on The View, publicly sided with conservative Rick Santorum's comment that, quote-unquote, radical feminism was ruining the traditional family. And let's not even waste the time like diving into that assertion. Um, but on The View, she... I mean, she really made people a bit angry because she said, quote, there was a time when feminists made the woman who stayed home and had children feel inferior. I think we are finally changing so that we realize younger ones, you can make a choice. So I don't think that what he said is so terribly off the point. And that's a strong move to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to side with you, Rick Santorum, especially if you might be more associated with slightly more liberal politics. But that really isn't different from what she was saying during the height of second wave feminism. Um, for instance, in there's a 1974 book I found, The New Feminist Movement, and she was quoted as saying that second wave feminists, quote, have given women who want to stay home a national inferiority complex. And thinking about that, I understand what she's saying in terms of it shouldn't be demonizing women who want to stay home. It should be more about the choice, perhaps in 2012, the way that she said it and the person that she was uh, supporting as she was saying that was really more of the the problem for people. Right. But I mean, I think it's interesting and I, I think it's I don't know, just coming that statement coming from a woman who obviously did make the choice and right. felt like she had to make the choice. Like she said, I had to work. I didn't want to fall back on marriage or any kind of safety net, you know, because her father had been in show business. He was a nightclub owner. It all could be gone in a second. And she knew that. And so she wanted to keep working, you know, keep being as successful as possible, make her contribution. And so the fact that she's the one coming forward and saying, you feminists are giving women who want to stay at home and raise babies an inferiority complex. I mean, I think that gives it maybe some extra weight. Yeah. And I wonder if that speaks to pressure that she had felt at points during her career that maybe she should stay home with her adoptive daughter or at least step back a little bit how um, you could keep Barbara Walters intense schedule and also uh, you know be a, a full-time mom that that just seems pretty impossible um, but you know Barbara certainly has not been without her controversy once she announced her retirement in May 2013 everybody came out with, you know, a blog post or an article or something on Barbara saying good riddance or, oh, Barbara, we'll miss you. And Alex Perrine, for instance, over at Salon was one of the people who said good riddance because he said she's fine for infotainment, but she has no journalistic scruples whatsoever because of her very close, he thinks, two close relationships over the years with sources, some of whom were just a tad corrupt such as most recently Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, who um, she had on, I can't remember if it was on 2020, but she had one of the first interviews with him. And Perrine was talking about how, well, of course she got that interview because she's actually good friends with him and his wife. And and talking about other, um, usually actually men for the most part, that she had been friends with, but also would interview or use as as sources. Yeah, and one thing I read was talking about how maybe that that comfort with extremely famous 
or infamous people, that that ease of, of interviewing all sorts of people from all different walks of life comes from her upbringing because her father was in show business and because she had been in some form of journalism for so long. And yeah, she has walked that infotainment tightrope for decades. You know, she's able to jump between interviews with heads of state and celebrities like the, you know, the Kardashians or that infamous Ricky Martin interview where she was basically like demanding that he come out of the closet on her show. And he's like, look, I don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was pretty vilified for for that at the time. Yeah. Um, and also on Salon, just kind of on the flip side of the controversy, TV critic Mary Elizabeth Williams said, you know what? I am all about some Barbara Walters. She says that, yeah, OK, we've, we, she's got the soft focus. She's got the infotainment spin and all of that, quote. But what she leaves behind is a ferociously powerful, maddeningly unduplicated example. And she's a woman who out earned many of her male counterparts and has been unashamed and unapologetic about her aspirations. Yeah, and uh, over at The Cut from New York Magazine, they wrote that Barbara has served as a bridge between an era when the news was defined by a small, homogenous group of experts to a time when discussion and conversation reign. And I think her career has totally mirrored that trajectory as far as like starting out wanting to be in hard news, talking to heads of state, whereas now she's hosting a talk show, basically. Right. And that's not to say that The View never touches on political stories, harder news, bigger societal issues. Um, but, you know, it's still, it's definitely, it's not C-SPAN. You know? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, she's not just sitting there talking like Brian Williams, delivering the news at night. You know, it's it's four, four or five or however many people are on The View sitting around on a couch talking. Right. Versus the more serious, like, Walter Cronkite. Who do you think will replace her? Anybody? Do you think they'll, do you think they'll pull in a replacement? Who's somebody with some gravitas? Martha Stewart. She's looking for a new gig, right? All she's doing is dating on Match.com right now. And yeah, and getting into trouble for selling her spatulas at different stores. Oh, Martha. No spatulas. No, maybe, um, Let's make our prediction. Hmm. The person who will take over for Barbara Walters in 2014 won't be Katie Couric, because after she got the shaft, she she has her own talk show now and it's successful. And I don't think that it would be Diane Sawyer. Diane- hey, maybe Ann Curry. I don't think it would be Ann yeah. Curry. I don't think it would be Ann Curry. But you know what? If it were Ann Curry, I might watch The View. <laughs> because of her unceremonious exit from the Today Show. Uh, so, but just to sign off, though, should we toss out some final accolades that Barbara Walters has received? Absolutely. Over the years, listen to this. Nominated for 27 Daytime Emmy Awards. She's won it four times. Nominated for 20 News and Documentary Emmy Awards and won eight times. And then nominated for 12 Primetime Emmys and won one time. So let me look at this math. Let me add everything up. 13 Emmys. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad, Babs. I wonder if she has a cabinet. An Emmy cabinet? Mm -hmm. Or maybe she just sprinkles them around, you know? She puts one in each of her 13 bathrooms in her home. Yep, one in each shower. (laughs) Yes. So that's it. Barbara Walters, uh, hats off for you to um, really never giving up. And also still, though, I want to say that... Lover or hater, what a great example, though, of a woman who is well beyond retirement age. Yeah. Who never stopped working. No. 
And and I do like what she said when she retired. You know, I just I just want to sit on a hill and watch everything happen. You know, just watch it go by. I mean, after after being on television for over fifty years, I think she deserves a vacation. Yeah, you wonder if her attitude is still the same today as it was then. As far as I have to work. Because obviously, I mean, she's been pretty consistently successful yeah. for decades now. Like, I think she's set. Yeah. I mean, Barbara Walters is as much of a celebrity and an A-lister as most of the people that she talks to at this point. Right. So let's hear from folks. Barbara Walters, what do you think? Any predictions for who will take over at The View? I know it's kind of a silly question, but it's a fun one. So write to us, momstuff at Discovery. Dot com or you can tweet us at Mom Stuff Podcast or send us a little message on Facebook and like us while you're at it. And we are going to read a couple of letters that we have from past episodes. But before we do, let's take a quick break and then we'll get right back. And now back to our letters. And we've got a couple here about our episode on glasses stereotypes, which we got a ton of letters from. And this one to kick off from Carmen is a little bit sad. Her subject line is, how I learned glasses are bad. She says, when I was in elementary school, I wore glasses because I was scared of putting things in my eyes. But in the sixth grade, I was at school one day and two girls on the other side of the classroom were talking about me. One of them said, that's Carmen over there, the ugly one with the glasses. Mm -hmm. I found out about this conversation because the girl who said that was one of my closest friends and she simply told me what she had said as if she saw no problem with calling me ugly. I told my mom I wanted contacts as soon as I got home that day. At the end of that school year, my middle school boyfriend saw my yearbook picture, which had been taken before I got contacts, and he immediately told me, I like you better with contacts. Middle school is the worst. It is the worst. I'm probably old enough now that no one would ever call me ugly to my face, but I still hate the idea of wearing glasses. I'll soon be leaving to work in a developing country for two years and did not want to deal with the hassle of bringing 800 pairs of daily contacts with me or being in a situation where I'm spending a night in a village without a sink for me to change my contacts. So in two days, I'll be getting LASIK surgery after four years of wearing glasses and 11 years of wearing contacts. It's possible that I would have gotten the surgery anyway because both glasses and contacts can be incredibly inconvenient at times, but certainly the negative stereotypes contributed a great deal to my enthusiasm for having lasers shot into my eyes in the name of eliminating my need for corrective lenses. Yeah, I have friends who've done LASIK and they love it. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm too scared. I'm too scared, period. Hmm. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Chelsea. She says, I've been wearing glasses for 21 years since I was six, and like you, I wear my contacts 99% of the time. I have exceptionally awful vision, and I've been legally blind since an early age. I definitely played into the stereotype of the dorky girl in school, which was reflected in my lack of a dating life until college. So I was not surprised to hear your findings in the podcast. I was surprised, however, that nothing was mentioned about being genetically inferior. I always assumed that people with glasses were subconsciously found less attractive because of some primeval knowledge that poor eyesight equates death. I always assumed I would have died early on if I was born before eyeglasses were invented. Much like with my lack of childbearing hips and bountiful breasts, I would also assume that people would not want to breed with someone who is likely to pass on their poor eyesight to their offspring. Did you find anything relating to that in your research? We did not uncover anything like that, but I I don't know. Yeah, I on a slightly related note that doesn't answer your question at all, 
So I recently found this book uh, that was a compilation of my great, 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 great uncle's letters to his family because he w- went to Dartmouth, went to law school and ended up dying in the Civil War like at the very end. And anyway, his beloved sister compiled all of his letters and, and so many of his letters when he's off at college, he's writing home and he's like, oh, mother and father, I can barely see as I write you this letter, my eyes. And he's like always concerned about his eyes and he's always looking forward to Christmas break and summer breaks off so that he can rest his eyes because he's like, I'm afraid I will need glasses. Oh my. And he was also very skinny. So that means nothing. But it's very interesting to read a first-hand account of someone in the 18... When was that? College. I don't know for him. But who was scared of getting glasses. Oh. Man, if only if only Warby Parker existed back then, he'd be the most stylish chap at Dartmouth. I mean, he had a killer mustache. There you go. Wow, he was <laughs> he had everything he needed just right there. He just needed some some thick frames. Well, thanks to everyone who's written into us. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also follow us on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast, and we're on Facebook as well. Don't forget to check us out there, see what we're doing, and follow us on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And don't forget to watch us as well. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we come out with a new video for you on our YouTube channel. It's YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. Head on over and subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 